We do a lot of things in worship. Hopefully they are profound actions. While it is not necessary for us to do so, when we pray, we bow our heart and our heads before God. That's heads bow, sign of reverence to him. Some, during some of the songs we sing, will raise their arms in praise. And uh, folks, uh, I might ought to warn you, I got pumped up today. <laughs> I'm ready to go. We said a lot about rejoicing. Uh, we stand in reverence of the scripture as we read. We give offerings. But there's one ancient and significant gesture in worship that is often done, uh, not typically among evangelicals, but something I think it is worth our learning. It is called passing the peace. Some of you who grew up in different traditions will be familiar with this. In fact, sometimes during benedictions, I hear the recall of part of that. It is an ancient and significant gesture in Scripture. It is rooted in Scripture and embodies our identity. In the Beatitudes, we are told, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It can train our hearts and our tongues in the ways of peace. And from the beginning, Christians have exercised this practice. It is actually found with Jesus. As he appeared to the disciples the first time after the resurrection, he entered into the locked room by saying to them, Peace be with you. In Paul's writings, frequently Paul opens up his letters with a phrase, grace and peace be with you. Now, Frank Ryan has pointed out in, in many congregations, uh, there is actually a physical act called passing the peace. It can be done during a mutual greeting. It can be done after words of assurance. It is often done prior and during the celebration of the Lord's Supper or at the conclusion of a worship service. And it is found that part of that is the grasping of hands uh, and calling out these words. I want you to pay close attention to them. The peace of the Lord be with you. And after you say this, the response is, and also with you. How about doing that with me, okay? I'll start off and let you start, okay? The peace of the Lord be with you. It's a very profound, it's simple, but it's a very profound statement. It is particularly profound at a moment in time like we see in our world. Folks, our world has always been a place of conflict and anger. Jesus said, you will hear wars of rumors of wars, and that has marked the human race. In the West, there's only been 200 years of peace in the Western history. It was known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And it wasn't because everybody loved each other. It was because they were all afraid of Rome. If you acted up, Rome would act very quickly. So we are living in a time where conflict again is reigning. We hear it on the international level. We see it here in our own country. 
It is felt in the local level when people act violently toward one another, sometimes for no comprehensible reason. We see it all the time. And to a church that Paul particularly loved and spoke about highly over and over again about his love for them, Paul pointed his readers to the peace of God, a peace that was real, a peace that could be powerful and true. We're going to be looking at Philippians 4, 2 through 7 today. And the words of peace actually begin a little bit later, actually beginning in verse 4. We're turning to that. But I wanted to read for you the first couple of verses because it gives you the context of why Paul was talking about this issue. So, hear the word of the Lord. Please stand again in reverence to that word. And Paul wrote, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. And you may be seated. Paul shared with these disciples that he loved deeply the, the key, the secret of joyful peace. It's not just peace. It is joyful peace that he gives them. And I think this is a lot more than wishful thinking. It's very often in different pageants when, when contestants are asked, what do you hope for the world? The knee-jerk reaction is, I want peace for the world. But folks, it's more than an answer to a simple question. It can be a reality. I believe that as followers of Christ, people in the family of God, we can actually experience the joyful peace that comes from God. Now we'll do that as we take a look at this text. We're going to look at several different truths that are linked to this peace. Truths that if we embrace, truths that if we embody, we will begin to see peace in our lives. We can't control the world. We can't cause wars to cease. But there can be peace in our hearts as we open them up to God. So we're going to take a look at these truths. And I want you again to listen, both ears and your heart, to the word and what it has to say to us. And the very first truth, joyful peace is linked to a gentle spirit. Before Paul starts talking about peace, he talks about a particular situation going on in the church at Philippi. Paul comments on Euodia and Syntyche and emphasizes the reason for a gentle spirit. It's been said of these two women, they have been immortalized because they quarreled. 
That's the only reason we know anything about them. They don't appear anywhere else in Scripture. Just this one area. Paul says, I am begging you, Euodia. I am begging you, Syntyche. Get together. Put whatever has happened to you behind and work together. And the thing is, we don't even know what it is. He doesn't go into details. Sometimes when we ask for prayer requests, it can turn into a gossip session. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Uh, But we can say, pray for this person. And then we feel like we have to go into all the gritty detail. Paul doesn't do that. He's just pleading that these two women get together. And someone has said that they believe, David Garland says, I believe that this one thing was the crux of Paul's concern in the letter. This problem that happened between two women that were important in his ministry has now affected the church, uh, the Philippians that have love and joy and it's affecting them. Just think about some of the things. Why would Paul say, I want you to have this mind that is in Christ Jesus? I want you to to don't worry about being served, but serving and taking a meekness upon yourselves. He's leading to this moment in time when the one major problem they're dealing with. Now, they had served with Paul. He says they were fellow workers, along with Clement and others. They had contended for the faith. And Paul says, I need you, I beg you to to work this out. But notice it's gotten bad enough that they need a mediator. Faithful yoke fellow. And some people believe that that's actually a, a proper name. And he's actually calling someone out by name. We don't know that for sure. But someone in the church, Paul is saying, you need to help them get back together. They have been faithful. Their names are written in the book of life. Paul is making it absolutely clear. These women are real Christians. They're not Christian in name other only. They are true believers and they have been used by God greatly in the past. And now this breach in their relationship is affecting their ministry and the ministry of the church as a whole. And so it's with that context to women who are arguing, Paul makes observation. Let your, and he moves away from the two women to the whole church, let your gentleness be known by everybody. Let your gentleness, that is sometimes translated magnanimity, let your gentleness, let your kindness, your, your love. It's actually a rare word in Paul's letters. It is found here in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 3 2. And he's highlighting it because it's appropriate. There is a contention. And now as the church, you need to be gentle to everyone. Notice, it's not just you need to be gentle with each other. Let your gentleness be known to all. That word carries with it the idea of people who when they are provoked, do not seek revenge. People when they are hurting, and they have been hurt, are open They're ready for reconciliation. They're ready to build 
bridges and restore relationships that have fallen. It is used of trusting your neighbor. And in Titus 3.2, when the word is used, it's used specifically calling believers to avoid language that speaks evil of anyone. Whether vocally or on your Facebook or Twitter account. Someone who's gentle is speaking kindness. Paul wanted the Philippians to know that this kind of harshness, this kind of brokenness, this kind of anger was not acceptable in the body of Christ. And to drive the point home, Paul said, let your gentleness be known to everybody because the Lord is near. Now there's two possible things Paul may be talking about. He may be saying Christ is with you. And Jesus promised where there are two or more gathered, I'm there in their midst. But in the book of Philippians, there's a lot of attention played to the idea of Christ's return when Christ comes and the fulfillment of salvation takes place. So it's probably that that he's thinking about. He's telling them the Lord is closer than he's ever been before. And folks, if that be true for Paul, it's true for us. We don't know when he's coming. But every day lived, every year past, that return is closer. And when he comes back, Jesus will be judge. And we need to understand, read 2 Corinthians 3 very carefully, and you'll find out Christians are not exempt from the judgment of Christ. And what he's going to look for, does my heart beat in your heart? The gentleness that is in Christ Will it be found in his believers? It's a statement that should bring us a spirit of sober thought. Lord, do I reflect you? You see, we need to understand something. And folks, we need to hear this clearly. We lose opportunity for joyful peace the moment we allowed harsh attitudes to rise within us. The minute I start acting like the world, the minute I start acting on don't get mad, get even mentalities, peace kind of flies out the window. When trouble comes because we're following Christ, that's actually a testimony. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.14, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ... You are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So, if we're facing trouble, if we're facing reaction because we're living for Christ, that's actually a sign that we are actually living for Christ. But, we must not lose sight of this very important truth. A lot of the trouble that we bring on, or a lot of the trouble we experience in the church, we have brought upon ourselves. Paul writes something interesting to the church at Ephesus. In chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, he says, In your anger, do not sin. So please notice, Paul is actually saying anger itself is not sin. But don't let it become sin. Hear the rest of what he says. In your anger, do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. What is he talking about? When we allow anger to fester in us, when we allow anger to cause this hurting not only within ourselves but everyone around us, he is saying when that happens, when we hold on to it, when we refuse to let it go, we are giving the enemy of our faith a foothold. Danny, that's not possible. A child of God can't be used by Satan. Oh, yeah? Remember Peter? Jesus says, who do men say I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you are blessed, Peter, because no one revealed this to you. No human did. My Father has revealed this to you. Peter might have gotten a little bit puffed up. He quickly got deflated because Jesus said, and the Son of Man is about to give his life. And Peter says, we won't let that happen. And Jesus turns to the man he has just blessed and said, do you remember? Get thee behind me, Satan. It's possible for us to be used in such a manner that we dishonor the name of Christ. When we are Christians and we are on the warfare, sometimes with other believers and sometimes with the world itself, and we've held on to our anger and we're explosive in our anger, we bring dishonor to God. So what do we need to do? Let us open ourselves up to the gentleness the Word of God calls for in our dealings with others. Folks, the Word of God tells us without any hesitation the way I respond to other people can either bring glory to God or dishonor His name. In the book of Romans, Paul wrote to a church he had never met, but he knew the human heart really well. And in Romans 12, 18, he says, If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Folks, if we are exhibiting the gentleness that Paul spoke about, we are doing everything we possibly can to live at peace with others. And when we do that, we honor him. We honor him. How is that possible? How can we get to the place of showing gentleness? Centuries ago, John Calvin, some people think of him as a heartless person. Uh, it's interesting, Calvin was a lawyer by training. And uh, his, his Institutes of Christian Religion have never been out of print since he first published them. And in that book, this man that some people say is cold and harsh said this, you will never attain true gentleness except by one path, a heart imbued with lowliness and with reverence for others. Paul told the Galatians, bear each other's burdens. The word of God tells us to count other people as more esteemed than we are. Reverence. Every person you meet is created in the image of God. 
And therefore, they are the creature of God just like us and deserve dignity for no other reason than God created them. So when Calvin says, a heart given to lowliness and reverence, let us ask our God to give us those kind of hearts. I love the expression, losing your temper. I've often found, wouldn't it make more sense to say we found our temper? (laughs) We found the anger? God, help us to be gentle so that we can know peace. Because when we're harsh and hateful, peace flies out the window. But that's not all. Now comes the past part of the passage we're more familiar with. Joyful peace is linked to hearts of prayer. Joyful peace is linked to hearts of prayer. Paul is talking about peace and he gives them a very important truth here. And he encouraged his readers to deal with their anxieties in life with prayer. And it actually comes in the form of commands. The first command, do not be anxious. And folks, literally, what Paul is telling the Philippians, stop worrying. In other words, they're already anxious. They're already concerned. The troubles are already piling up. And they're seeing them and they're forgetting who God is. So he says, stop worrying. And then he says, pray. And these two commands are all-inclusive. Notice he said, do not be anxious about anything. Instead, pray in every situation. You see, the root idea of the verb to be anxious means to be pulled apart. You're just kind of being rent in two. So Paul is saying, don't allow your lives to become so wrapped up with anxiety and fear that you lose sight of who God is and you lose sight of His purpose, that your faith is starting to get shredded. Don't let that happen to you. Instead, pray. Jason Meyer beautifully contrasts the difference between anxiety out of control and praying. We can either carry our cares, that is our our anxiety, we can carry them and let them rip us apart, or we can remove our cares by giving them to God in prayer. Folks, we're not making requests to God because He doesn't know what we need. I remember as a young preacher boy, I was my church's children's church pastor. And I got a call from some parents. One of their daughters was wanting to come to faith. They said, you're her pastor. Would you come and talk to her? And I did. And I shared with her. And she gently confessed Jesus is Lord. And then I made the mistake of asking her if she had any questions. Don't do that. She hit me first of all is what's the Trinity? 
And I've already told you, or many of you have heard my quote, he who denies the Trinity is in danger of losing his soul. He who tries to understand the Trinity is in danger of losing his mind. And I was 17 years old. I wish I could unsay everything I said. But then she asked, well, why do we pray? And that one I had. We don't pray because God doesn't know what we need. We pray because we need to remember he is the source to whom we turn. Paul says, pray so you can have peace. They were to make their requests to God by prayers and petition. Your translation may read supplication. The word prayer is just a general word that means talking to God. But that second word is more specific. And it describes an urgent prayer. Something that's happening, that's crushing, some kind of need that is overwhelming you. And you need God and his answer. And you address that urgent prayer to God. Help me, God. I don't understand what's going on. I don't know how to get out of this. I need you, God, to show me. So in essence, Paul is emphatically urging the Philippians to find release from anxiety through prayer and even more prayer. Not just one prayer. Make your request known to God. Pray. Make supplication. Make this petition. And keep praying. It's been pointed out. This is particularly appropriate for this letter. Do you know where Paul was when he wrote the letter of Philippians? He was in prison. He was in Rome. And Paul didn't know if he would ever be set free. Paul didn't know if he would ever see the Philippians again. Someone has said he's not sitting at the Cafe Roma gently sipping espresso. He's in prison. And ultimately we know that he was executed for his faith. And the church at Philippi is about to undergo persecution. So to these people he's saying, don't let these anxieties control you. These are not imaginary problems. These are not phantom anxieties. They're not worrying about nothing. There are real problems. So when he tells them, stop worrying, do not be overly anxious for nothing, and he leaves no exceptions for nothing, he's not making light of their problems. He's not saying along with Bobby McFerrin, don't worry, be happy. He knows they have real problems. But he's wanting them to understand God is greater than your problems. God is greater than the anxiety. And we need to understand that worry can cripple the joy that belongs to the child of God. Joy is our birthright, folks. We have been touched by God Almighty. We have been saved. We are part of the family of God. We have reason for joy. And all those songs we sang about rejoicing are powerful and true for us. 
But in the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that is particularly focused on disciples, other people were allowed to hear, but he's focusing on them and saying, this is the way you need to live your life. In the sixth chapter, verses 25 through 34, he goes into a, a very long discussion about the anxieties of life. And he stated, he dealt with the most common. He talked about anxiety over physical attributes. Can you gain, can you add an inch to your height? Or some ideas mean, can you add another day to your year? He talks about clothing. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about the food you're going to eat. Don't even worry about the future. And it's been pointed out, we are living in a much more complex world than the Philippians knew. But they're the same problems that we worry about. The same anxieties, the major ideas. R.C. Sproul, update timely, he went to be with the Lord not too long ago. He's got a great little book, Can I Have Joy in My Life? And he says of anxiety, it is anxiety that robs us of our joy. And what is anxiety but fear? Fear is the enemy of joy. It's hard to be joyful when we are afraid. One of my favorite Baptist, Southern Baptist theologians, Frank Stagg, said, There are problems in the world and we are to take these seriously, but anxiety is destructive, not creative. It is faithless, fruitless, and evil. When we allow our anxieties to overwhelm us, to cause us to lose sight of God, then joy and peace are not going to be ours. So, Let us learn to face our anxieties by bringing them to the God who listens to our hearts. Folks, I'm not trying to tell you, I'm not not Bobby McFerrin. I realize there are real problems, and we'll talk about that again. But we need to learn that in the face of anxiety, in the face of being torn apart by everything that might happen, we need to learn to remain to God. C.S. Lewis once observed that if your gaze remains fixed in the right place, the right action will follow. In other words, if you're worried about doing the right thing, you need to be sure you're focused on the right thing. So if you're looking only at the action, I need to quit worrying. That's easy to say, isn't it? You could say that right now. I need to quit worrying. That's so easy. But the moment Lewis says we focus on I need to quit worrying, it puts that on our ability. It's something I have to do. Instead, he argued, instead of looking at don't worry, look to God of peace. Not the need for peace. I need peace in my life. First of all, let me look. God, I need you in my life. I need you to be moving. I need you to touch me. I need you to give me the peace that I cannot by my own willpower manufacture. When we focus our gaze on God, the peace can come. But if I'm trying really hard to do it on my own, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. Folks, 
we need to be looking to God. Right now in the world in which we're living, if all we see is the conflict and the hate and the anger and all of the things that is, are happening within the world, if that's all we see, we won't have peace because we won't be turning to God in prayer. Or if we do, it's like a quick God do something if you can. We need to be praying. And yes, there are times those petitions are urgent prayers. God, without your help, we have no hope. But yet that's not it. All. Because Paul adds one other truth to the mix. And it is another command. And that next truth Joyful peace is linked to mindful thankfulness. And what I mean by mindful, we are intentionally being thankful. Intentionally focusing our hearts on thankfulness. Not just one day out of the year, not just one month out of the year, but every day of our lives. Lord, help me learn what it means to be thankful. And Paul topped off his exhortation that is pointing toward peace. He says, don't let worry destroy you. Go to God. Make your request known to him with prayers and supplication. And he tops it all off, the exhortation of facing anxiety by focusing on the need for thanksgiving. With prayers and petitions, with thanksgiving. And with that statement, it is the key element. Thankful hearts. Why are we thankful? Because of what God has done in their lives. They are saints at Philippi. They are children of God. They are in his family. What God is doing in their lives, I am persuaded that I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. And finally, it's firmly grounded in the assurance of God. Paul says that as you work out your own salvation, I am confident that the God who started a work in you is going to bring it to completion. Past, present, and future, God is moving in your life and you need to be thankful. Not because God's ego demands it, uh, my first church out of college, Rachel and I are driving home, and, and I have a flat tire. And so I change the tire, and I start the car up and start to move, and the flat was flat. I mean, the spare was flat. We are three miles from the house, and we start walking. Somebody stops and picks us up. She recognizes us. She was a daughter of one of my church members. And I was so thankful. I was, thank you so much. This has been such a big help. She drove us to a deacon who had a tire we could put on and get everything going. I was there, I was at church. I was a pastor of that church for nearly five years. And in nearly five years, every time this woman saw me, do you remember the time that I stopped and gave you a ride when you had two flats? I've mentioned before that when I see people in 
Some people in Walmart first, they don't see me. She was the first person. I hid from her. And it was, I, I was, did I have to get on my knees and kiss her shoes? Would that have satisfied? I'd already told her thank you like a thousand times. But she needed, I guess, some kind of assurance that I was thankful. It's not God's ego. Thankfulness is reminding us what he's done for us. We're children of the living God who has promised us right here, right now, we are never alone. He is with us always. He hears us when we cry. And one day, He's going to bring us into His presence for all eternity. Where there are no tears. William Hendrickson said, Thank prayer without thanksgiving is like a bird without wings. Such a prayer cannot rise to heaven, can find no acceptance with God. Not because... He needs it. We need it. Why is this so important? Because trouble in our lives can lead us to the loss of thankfulness. The loss of thankfulness. When trouble comes. And it's going to come. It's going to come. How do I know this? Because Jesus our Lord said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. He didn't say you might. He didn't say you might stumble into it. It might sneak. He says you're going to have it. As children of the living God, we are not exempt from trouble. Remember, Paul wrote this letter in prison. And so when he gives a command, rejoice, again I'll say it, rejoice, there's truth and teeth in that. Because he had every reason to not have joy. If we allow ourselves to believe, as some in the broad umbrella of what is known as Christendom, some people will tell you, if you have enough faith, you won't have problems. If you just have enough faith, everything works out. Well, folks, if you decide to live like that, be ready. Because when trouble finally does show up, you have opened yourself up to anxiety, to fear, to defeat. Because if I think the God has promised I won't have any problems or any trouble then the trouble either means God has failed me or I have no faith. Someone, and I wish, this is one of those anonymous quotes I've found through the years. Someone once said, I used to tell my troubles to everyone I knew and the more I told my troubles, the more my troubles grew. If all I'm going to do is focus on the problems and the struggles and the The pain, I keep forgetting to look at God. But if I'm willing to accept the reality and expect in this life there are going to be problems, 
There are going to be things that happen to us we did not plan for, we did not want. And we cannot stop on our own. Acknowledging what Jesus said, you will have trouble, lets me know that God hasn't fallen off the throne when things don't go my way. God is in control. The ultimate solution of the problems is not pretending they won't happen, but looking to the God who comes to our aid. So let us remember that knowledge of a God who answers our cries is the key to thanksgiving in the midst of the storm. Some of you who know your Bible well know that I kind of cheated a moment ago. Some of you know that I only quote a a portion of a verse. I only cited one part of John 16, 33. In this world you will have trouble. Know what the rest of the verse says? But take heart. I have overcome the world. In all trouble you should seek God. Augustine of Hippo wrote, In all trouble you should seek God. You should not set him over against your troubles, but within them. God can only relieve your troubles if in your anxiety cling to him. Troubles should not really be thought of as this thing or that in particular, for our whole life on earth involves trouble, and through the troubles of our earthly pilgrimage we find God. Some of you will remember Andre Crouch's song, Through It All. One of the most powerful songs I've ever heard. Beautiful. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. You may not know the circumstances behind that song. He was engaged to be married. And on a concert tour in Europe, he receives a message from his intended, a woman he loved deeply. And she said, it's over. And he was heartbroken. This wasn't puppy love. This isn't a high school romance. They had plans of marriage. It's over. And he sat down at his piano and just started playing in his sadness, in his pain. And as he played, he said the words to this song, God just kind of opened it up to him. If I'd never had a problem, I wouldn't know that he could solve them. I'd never know what faith in God could do. It's part of the words that God gave him. Folks, thankfulness. It's not about God, thank you that everything's going my way. It is thanking God for the good things he has done, what he is doing and what he will do, but it's also thankfulness to God. Part of what you've promised you will do right now is walk with me through the valley of the shadow. And I'm not alone. Karl Barth 
a brief survey of the commands of rejoicing in the book of Philippians noted, this command first shows up in chapter 2, verse 18, where Paul tells the Philippians that they should be glad and rejoice with him. And then again in chapter 3, verse 1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And the third and final time, it's here in 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. From the force of those three moments, three commands Paul gives to this church, rejoice in the Lord, Bart concluded that joy in Philippians, and I love this, is a defiant nevertheless. Nevertheless, rejoice. No matter what's happening. No whether the sun is shining or the clouds are in the sky, no matter what's happening, nevertheless rejoice. Why? Because God has told us, I am with you. No matter what. And so, in this month of Thanksgiving, in this day, when I'm pretty sure trouble will follow me as soon as I pull onto Pass Road. We can begin to know joyful peace as we embrace the spirit of gentleness. God I need you to be with me while I'm driving down Pass Road so I don't act like a maniac. Gentleness to those who would harm. We can begin to know joyful peace when we truly become a people of prayer. Not just, Lord, thank you for this food and use it to nourish our bodies, but Lord, I'm struggling right now. And I don't know what's going to happen and I don't know what to do and fear is clutching at my heart and I need you to bring me peace. Because you are the author of peace. And right now, I need your peace. When we develop hearts of thankfulness. God, I don't know what you're doing. But I know according to the promise of your word that all things are working together for my good and that somehow you're going to use this moment in my life to purify and refine me and make me into the man I'm supposed to be. So God, thank you that when trouble comes, I'm never alone. Joyful peace can really be ours. Whatever is facing us, as we open ourselves, our hearts, our lives to God, God, make me a gentle person. Remind me when the problems come, my first task is to go to you and start praying. And folks, I would even include with that Get others to pray with you as well. God, teach me what it means to be thankful all the days of my life that I may glorify you forever. Today, let's ask God to allow us whatever happens, Lord, nevertheless, we are going to rejoice.
because you are the God who brings us our peace.